little review. We're doing a Sunday school class on what's called the three forms of unity. And some of us will be very familiar with it. Others, I don't know what that is. Uh, so the three forms of unity come from the, the Reformed Church on the continent of Europe. We talked a little bit about how international uh, the Reformed movement was there in Europe and still is really when you consider it. We said today probably the most Presbyterian nation on the planet isn't located in America or Europe. It's probably South Korea. So there's about 9 million Presbyterians in South Korea just from the statistics that I was able to find. So that's quite a few Presbyterians there in Korea uh, as well. Brazil is, I think, over a million Presbyterians as well. So the, the Reformed faith is growing, and we talked a little bit about the difference in context. So on the continent of Europe, you had the Roman Catholic Church. You also had the Lutheran Church, and you had the Reformed Church. And uh, the Reformed Church, we said they were trying to emphasize with that name that they were being reformed by the Word of God. So when you form concrete, you have these big, heavy plywood forms that you put in the ground, and that holds the concrete where it's supposed to be. That's what the Word of God does to the church. It keeps the church where it's supposed to be. But in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, there was a blowout, and we had to reform the church according to the Word of God. And so that's what's being emphasized on the continent of Europe. But in the British Isles, things were a little different. Uh, so in England and Scotland, Wales, uh, the Reformation was really able to take seed through kind of the government, uh, King Henry VIII, and then uh, Edward and Elizabeth. They were able to really reform the church in a lot of ways. And sometimes it didn't go far enough. But the difference in the churches had to come down mainly to government. Now, there's other differences between the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, but one of the big differences between the Church of England and the, Presbyter <clears throat> and the Presbyterians was their church government. And so in America, the, the Anglicans, or the Church of England, becomes known as Episcopalian. And we had a good question after class about, what does it mean when you say they're bishop-ruled? versus uh, elder ruled. So that's my great drawing Chuck was complimenting earlier. Uh, so here's the difference. You have uh, bishop rule would be the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church, and elder rule would be the Reformed or the Presbyterian, and then way over there is the Congregational rule. So that would be like Baptists or Independents, Congregationalists, or uh, non-denominational churches today. So congregational rule is very common in America. But the idea of the bishop rule, we see bishop and elder as one and the same in the Reformed and the Presbyterian Church. The word elder or bishop, overseer, gets used interchangeably in, in, in the Bible. Um, so we don't see a distinction really between bishop and elder. Uh, we just see... There's teaching elders and ruling elders, and the teaching elder would be like the minister, and the ruling elders would be like uh, Ryan, Scott, and uh, Jeremy. But um, so that that's kind of the difference there. You also have the the bishop in the Anglican Church would be over a group of churches, so he's kind of the pastor for the pastors of the churches. So he's over the presbytery. He's kind of like a little king. Um, and we say, no, that's not how the Bible depicts it. You have elders coming together from the congregation ruling uh, because we don't have apostles still. And then all the way over here, you have congregations, and the congregation will vote. They'll say, hey, we want to call this guy as a pastor. That's kind of it. Uh, so the congregation has total authority. But you don't always see connectedness in congregationalism. Yes. Uh, the question is, is there only one bishop? So, no. There would be different bishops over different areas, but you might also have what's called an archbishop. So, like the Archbishop of Canterbury would be an example. So he's going to be kind of over a lot of 
area. Um, so it's just a difference in government, and that's kind of how they, they deal with things in the British Isles. Uh, most of the Baptists are going to come out of, that you have today, come out of the Congregationalist Church or the Independents. Uh, so it's all coming from the same Reformation, but just expressed differently. And on the continent, it's going to be much more elder-ruled. And we were very passionate about that. We think elders, and uh, that's the way it ought to be. And the church ought to be connected, and we see that in several places in Scripture. But Acts 15 is a classic place to look for that. It's called, that's where the Jerusalem Council happened. And you see that when the church was being troubled by these false teachers called Judaizers who were trying to put the circumcision on the Gentiles, the, the churches get together, the apostles and the elders get together, and they come out with a ruling and they say, no, no, Judaizers are wrong. You don't need to be circumcised. Uh, so they, they came together for that decision. So that, there's that connectedness. Any other follow-ups on that? That was a good question we had last time. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, and also, just I wanted to bring up how international the Reformation was. I forgot, Italy also had Reformation going on. I didn't mention Italy, but Italy did. Uh, there was a church called the Waldensi Church with a guy named Peter Waldo, uh, that began a reformation in Italy, but the persecution was a lot stronger there, uh, so the church had trouble taking root. But you have some of the best theologians of the Reformation coming out of Italy. So there was a guy named Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, doesn't sound English, he was from Italy. Uh, another guy would be Francis Turretin, and his name was really Francois Turretini, uh, so definitely Italian. He was probably one of the best scholastic theologians. Uh, he, he's one of the successors to Calvin and Beza in Geneva. His, his family had to flee to Switzerland. Uh, remember, the persecution really drove the church into certain areas where they had protection and they weren't afraid of losing their lives. So Switzerland and the Netherlands really become hubs on the continent for... Uh, the Christian faith, the Reformed faith, to take root. Okay, so that's a, a fair review, I think, of where we were last time. Uh, so the three forms of unity, they're the confessional standards or the statements of faith, maybe would be a way that we're more used to, to talking about confessions here in America. Statements of faith. What does the Bible say? Right, everybody likes to say, we believe the Bible. Uh, but what does that actually mean, right? It could change each week depending on what pastor says. And so if you don't have a statement of faith that's written out, you end up kind of getting the pastor who's the pope. Uh, whatever he feels this week, that might be the truth this week, and it could change next week. Uh, so it's important to have statements of faith or confessions that hold people accountable, uh, kind of the standard from where we're going to go. And one of the questions I ask, and I think it's worth thinking about still, if you were to teach the faith to a new convert, uh, where do you start? Where do you start with a new convert or a child? I think one of the classic places to start is the book of John, right? The book of John is a great uh, book to read, for new converts to read. It's written so that you might believe that Jesus is God. Right, so that's a great place to start. But there's always questions that come up as we're reading the Bible, right? There's these questions, well, what about this? What about that? And we may not have an understanding of any doctrine, right? The teaching. And so things become very confusing. Is Jesus God? How is the Father God and Jesus God and the Holy Spirit all God at once? Uh, questions about the Trinity come up. Questions about providence come up. Uh, and so it's really helpful to have these summaries of the faith written down so that we can go to them. Um, you know, and one of the fancy words that the church has used for years and years is catechism. That's what catechisms are for. They're for teaching, and the word comes from echo. You can hear echo in, 
in katakeo would be the Greek word, and it, it has to do with the teacher would ask a question, then the class would respond orally. So it was question and answer form. That's what a catechism is. And we could probably change the name to just discipleship tool or something like that today. It's maybe catechism is a little scary to people. We feel intimidated. Well, that's a, that's a $10 word there that we don't use all the time. <laughs> Uh, but the, the point is, catechisms are great, especially when you're trying to teach the faith to new converts. Uh, and we're all really being catechized, aren't we? We're all being discipled, whether we know it or not, whether it's formal or not. You turn on the TV, kids are being catechized, they're being taught. You go to school, you're being catechized, you're being taught. And so what are we being taught? And I think it's helpful to be upfront with that. Here is what we're teaching. When I joined the Reformed Church, my pastor said, I'm going to give you this, you can read it, and this is good for you, because when you join a church, you should know what it believes, right? Uh, you don't buy a, he said, I don't buy a car without reading the contract, so why would I, why would I join a church without reading what they teach? Uh, this, is, this is really helpful to have something like that. We want to know what we believe and why. Uh, and I was just talking with somebody this week, you know, when we're when we're coming into the faith, it can be really tough to know what is good teaching, right? Everybody claims to believe the Bible, but where do we go to find out what's a good teaching? What's a good helpful aid? And so people go online, and you can find all kinds of things online, uh, some really good, right? We're very thankful for the ministry of guys like R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministries. That can be wonderful aids, but there's also all kinds of stuff that people probably shouldn't listen to online. Uh, and if you have no idea kind of where you're coming from, it can be tough to discern. Is this good? Is this bad? Uh, and so having something from the church that says, yes, this is what we believe, this is a good teaching tool or curriculum, that sounds a little schoolish, but uh, a good curriculum for you to, to look at and study, it's, it's really important, I think, especially in kind of information overload age today. And, you know, catechism was going on in the Bible, too. Uh, the word shows up in several places, and I think of Luke chapter 1. I'll just turn there real quick. This is kind of an interesting, interesting statement uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's a big question. I, I don't know that I have the answer to all the details here, but I'll just read Luke chapter 1. So, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And the idea is he's been taught things, and now Luke is given, the, uh, the gospel of Luke is given to make sure that, hey, I can have confidence. What I was taught in the church, what I was catechized in, instructed in, uh, I can have more certainty about it because it's in God's word. So that this is the idea of a catechumen or a student is really, I think, what's in view here with Theophilus, uh, this man uh, whoever he was, is learning about God and learning about the gospel. Um, but you see it elsewhere in Scripture, this idea of teaching and making sure that uh, people are taught the faith. And that's where the story of the Heidelberg Catechism comes in. So in the British Isles, you guys have a great catechism called the Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechisms. And on the continent of Europe, we tended to use the Heidelberg Catechism, was, I think, far and away the most popular catechism. But there's all kinds of catechisms that are being written uh, during the Reformation. Luther had a, a short catechism that he came out with pretty early on. And then the Lutheran Church in Germany, through a guy named Philip Melanchthon, 
uh, ended up writing what was called the Augsburg Confession, and that's one of the standards of the Lutheran Church. But if we remember a little bit from last time, Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism, was written in Germany uh, because there was a prince there named Frederick III. He was an elector. It's a little technical. But he wanted to give his people in Germany a good teaching tool. And he was reformed. He was Calvinistic. And so he got these guys together at the University of Heidelberg and said, please, write me a good teaching tool. Write me a good catechism. And the product of that was the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and the names are a little funny, so Melanchthon doesn't sound very German. And the guy who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism is named Ursinus. And there's another guy, Olivianus, that helped him with that. And it, just a little sidebar. The reason their names were like that is a lot of times if you were a scholar, during that time, you would change your name to Latin. So you get some interesting names. You're like, that doesn't sound very German. Melanchthon's name, I think, was Schwarzert, uh, but changed his name to Melanchthon. So a little bit different. Um, we don't typically do that today. Yeah, so the Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. So remember... The Reformation kind of started in 1517, if you had to pick a date, with the 95 Theses. And so the Gospel's going out into, into Europe. People are becoming Reformed. They're understanding the Gospel again because they had only been taught the Scriptures in Latin, and nobody spoke Latin. Right, so you're basically going from zero to 60 in 50 years. You can imagine that. The whole continent that hasn't been discipled. They just show up to Mass maybe on Christmas, Easter, when they might be able to take some, like, one part of the Lord's Supper. Was, they were typically not allowed to take the, the Mass, even as lay people. And they would hear everything in Latin. They weren't being taught in the common tongue. And so what good is that? It just leads to a lot of superstition and traditionalism really doesn't do much. So the idea of teaching, clear teaching, catechisms, they were absolutely vital. Uh, so the church begins being taught. They begin embracing the gospel that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of Christ alone. And so the Heidelberg Catechism is written from a Reformed perspective in order to do that. And... Um, it's, it's divided up into 129 questions, so question and answer format, 129 questions, and it gets divided up pretty quickly into 52 Lord's Days. And the idea of dividing it up into Lord's Days is so that you can preach it. Uh, every afternoon service in the Netherlands, afternoon or evening service, you would go through a, sec, a Lord's Day of the Catechism, typically, and you go through once a year, and you'd pick it up the next year, and pick it up the next year, and on and on it goes. And, uh, there was a lot of good that came from that. People were able to really take in the teaching of Scripture and understand the doctrines that were being taught. Um, and on top of that, in the Netherlands, it was taught every day in the public school system. So the, the schoolmaster, the school teacher, would be going through whatever Lord's Day the church in town was going through that Sunday. And so the children would be taught the catechism in school, right? In America, we had prayer and Bible reading. Uh, in the Netherlands, they had prayer, Bible reading, catechism. So they were all coming from the same direction, running the same way, more or less, and uh, then on Sunday afternoon, the preacher would get up and he would preach on what they've been learning all week. And so it was a really integrated society there in the Netherlands, and I think something worth emulating. Here in New England, we actually had something somewhat similar. They might not have had catechism preaching, but has anybody ever seen the New England Primer? This is a great little book. Uh, I can pass it around if you want. But in New England, Puritan New, or where the Pilgrims were, Puritan New England, 
they had, uh, this was basically your grammar textbook as a little kid. So you can learn your ABCs, and it's got some great little pictures in there. Uh, you can't really see it, but they give you a rhyme so you can memorize your ABCs. And A would be, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Uh, things like that. Heaven to find the Bible mind. My favorite was probably X. How do you get X? Well, Xerxes did die, and so must I. <laughs> and there's a little, little picture of Xerxes in his coffin there. Uh, good stuff like that. Uh, it's also got the Westminster Shorter Catechism in there and a few other things for kids. And, uh, it's, this is where, uh, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's in this book, so pass it around, flip through it. There's a few other things in there. But getting that integrated formation uh, in society, I think that's very important. Um, and we did it for a time here in America. Uh, it would be wonderful if we could start that again, I think. But Oh, here's, here's a look. Yes. I'm not sure. I know David Barton did plug it. Um, Yeah, yeah. so the, I'm remembering we're live streaming. So the question was, was this from wall builders? And wall builders would uh, talk about this some. Yeah. It's from Vision Forum is where I, I bought it from. Yeah. But a little bit of trivia here. I, I just liked this name, but... The first guy to preach the Heidelberg Catechism in church, he was kind of, he was a rock star, really. His name was Peter Gabriel. <laughs> so, yeah, Peter Gabriel involved with Genesis and catechism preaching. <laughs> so, pretty, pretty cool there. Uh, but they were meeting together when they were under oppression. So, they, you had people braving uh, basically persecution because the Netherlands were ruled by Spain. And so people were coming out under threat of really death and imprisonment to come here, not just the Word of God preached Sunday morning, but the Word of God is summarized in the catechism in the evening as well. And we noted last time, the Heidelberg is really distinct in how warm it feels. It feels very warm with the questions and answers. And I'll just read... The most famous one again, I don't have it in your outlines this time, but uh, Lord's Day 1, and it has to do with what is your only comfort in life and in death. It's always trying to say, well, here's the doctrine, but where's the rubber meet the road? What does this mean for you and me? And I think that's a helpful thing. The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I just love that, the warmth, the beauty of it. It's really summing up what is our hope? What is our comfort in life and death? And it's that I belong to my Savior. Uh, he assures me. So you got all three persons of the Trinity there in that first question and answer, and they're all working for redemption. They're all working to strengthen the Christian. So it's a wonderful kind of header to the catechism. But uh, the catechism goes on from there to really explain the Christian life. And if you were to summarize the Christian life for somebody in three words, I think it does a great job. Sin, salvation, service. Or guilt, grace, gratitude. It's more or less taken from the outline of the book of Romans. Uh, guilt, grace, gratitude. So we start off as guilty sinners. Then we get God's grace in Jesus Christ that saves us. And then we ask, well, now, how should we then live? And so the law of gratitude takes hold. 
And so that's really the layout. It's not so much like a systematic, let's go through this, that, and the other, uh, but how are we to experience the Christian life? And so there's just something about that that I think is uh, readily appealable to us because it's speaking to us where we're at uh, and answering those basic questions. So I have a brief outline there in your handout. Uh, Questions 3 to 11, or Lord's Days 2 to 4, deal with sin, so our misery. And then uh, it uses, actually, it's very interesting, what does it use to condemn us? Anybody know what condemns us, what leaves us guilty in the Heidelberg Catechism? It actually has to do with Christ's summary of the law of love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength. Uh, That's what condemns us, because we haven't loved God as we ought. And oftentimes we think, oh, I just love God perfectly. No, we don't. (laughs) We really don't. Um, So that's the first use of, of the law. And that law drives us then to seek a Savior. And that's where we get into salvation. And that would come in question answers 12 to 85 or Lord's Day 5 to 31. And that is laying out uh, more or less the Apostles' Creed as the way of talking about what God has done for our salvation through this brief little statement of faith called the Apostles' Creed. And then it gets into service how we are to now serve God out of gratitude by talking about first the Ten Commandments and then finally the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is the chief uh, way of showing our gratitude to God. But Has anybody ever heard of the, the three or the four landmarks of the Christian faith? Anybody ever heard them, that uh, language used before? Yeah. So the question, you know, when you're making a teaching tool, when you make a Sunday school curriculum, anything like that, when you're trying to disciple a new believer, what do you hit on and what do you not hit on? Uh, what topics do you touch and which do you leave alone? That's a big question because what you decide to talk about is really, it's going to shape kind of the direction of piety and where's the church going to really get up in arms over and where are they going to be a little less excited about things? And uh, They want to use these basic statements of faith, like the Apostles' Creed, and it'll talk about the sacraments as well, and the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So very, very basic stuff. And, um, yeah, it, it's actually more or less following a pattern that you see with the Jews in synagogue and, and Hebrew school. Uh, they use, they go through uh, the Ten Commandments and teach everybody what does it mean to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, they go through the prayers, which would be the Psalms, when they teach their kids. And then they also teach their kids about Leviticus. What about all these big festivals that we do? And like the sacraments, basically, Old Testament sacraments. Uh, and then they have a creed, and their creed would be Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's called the Shema, if you've the hero Israel, just read Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so that was more or less their creed, right? They're living in a time of polytheism where there's all sorts of different gods. And uh, Deuteronomy 6, no, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Hear, O Israel, listen, 
Don't look to idols, but listen. Hear what God says. We don't make graven images. We have one God. God is spirit. So that's kind of the Old Testament creed. But then when we get to the New Testament, we understand that God is one, but he's also triune. He's the Trinity. Where would be a good place to go if if someone said, hey, where's Trinity in the Bible? Yeah, the baptism of Christ would be a good one. Genesis 1, that's another good one. Sure. You know, a lot of the apostolic readings. That's what I was thinking of, Matthew 28. I'll just read that. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. This is one of those texts we should all be familiar with. Now, the eleven disciples uh, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. So they worshipped Jesus, that's interesting, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, there's name, singular, and yet three persons underneath there. That's a really interesting uh, Greek construction that's pointing to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, one thing you don't see in the Bible is the word Trinity. It's actually not there, but the doctrine is clearly there, uh, as we see in places like the Great Commission. And we see even with the creed there, with the Great Commission, Jesus is sending out to teach, to baptize, and to teach the nations all that I have commanded you. And so that's, that's a wonderful thing. Kind of goes with the idea of catechism. Uh, we do see creeds throughout the Bible as well, little brief statements. They're kind of like proto creeds, uh, like 1 Timothy 3.16 or 2 Timothy 2. Uh, but one of the questions I would just ask with the Heidelberg Catechism is what topics do you think aren't really covered? If you had to pick a pet topic that people are really going, you know, bonkers about today, uh, what topics aren't covered in the catechism? I think one topic that maybe isn't covered that maybe if you were to look at the American church would be kind of front and center in a lot of churches is end time stuff. End time stuff kind of takes a back seat. It is touched on briefly uh, in the Apostles' Creed, but it's talking about what's the resurrection of the body uh, what's the judgment? And it's very brief statements, and I think that's healthy. Right? We want to keep the gospel the main thing. And if we, if we put forward this very extravagant view of end times, uh, sometimes the gospel can take a back seat. And so I think it's helpful that way, in that it keeps things centered. Here's, here's a question for all of us, uh, the three uses of the law. Has everybody heard that, that term before, the three uses of the law? Uh, so three uses of the law. The first would be as a tutor. It convicts us of our sin and shows us our need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. The second would be for kind of the ordering of general society. Um, and then the third would be the law of gratitude. How are we to live as Christians? And the third use of the law gets far and away uh, the biggest chunk of the catechism because that's most of the Christian life, right? How are we to live now out of gratitude? Uh, But I have a few question and answers there. Uh, We we hit a few highlights last week uh, with the Heidelberg, but One of the questions that comes up with the Apostles' Creed, well, there's two that really 
kind of come up. And the first would be, what about Catholic? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic. Uh, so what do we mean when we say Catholic? And the Catechism defines the Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. Uh, that's kind of the definition. So question answer 54. Uh, it's in your outline. So I'll ask the question if you would respond with the answer. Get, get involvement here. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and will always be living member. So it doesn't say anything about Rome or the Pope or anything like that. Uh, it's just talking about, I'm part of God's church. Right? God's church is big from the beginning of the world to the end. We can talk about the church militant and the church triumphant. Uh, so the church militant would be the church on earth. The church triumphant would be the church in heaven. And uh, God's church includes both. So we are one with our brothers and sisters here on earth, and we're one with our brothers and sisters who are now in heaven. Uh, so that's how we understand Catholic Church. We're not secretly Roman Catholic, uh, in case you were wondering. But no, we are not. And then the other question comes, and this is a good one, what do we mean when we say that Christ descended into hell? That's a tough question. Uh, and we get question answer 44, our catechism explains that to us. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? And it says, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. It's very important, you know, that the Apostles' Creed is really basic Christianity. It's let me sum up the Christian faith in a hundred words in the Latin. Uh, and if Christ didn't suffer hell, brothers and sisters, Christ didn't pay your debt or mine. Uh, we have, a, I think, a warped view of hell in America today. We tend to say hell is simply separation from God. And it is, in one sense, but it's not time out. Uh, it's not just, you go over here and you're totally independent of God. Hell is the wrath of God being poured out upon sin. That is the penalty uh, that our sins incur. It is death, and eternal death, at that. And that is what Christ paid on the cross. That's why he had to be both God and man, to be able to take that penalty that our sins deserve. If he didn't, your debt is not paid and neither is mine. And the Catechism explains that earlier on in Lord's Day 5 and 6, and it's really channeling one of the older theologians, uh, Anselm, if you've ever heard of the name Anselm. Right before it gets to the Creed, it starts talking about, well, how are we to find redemption? Where's this Redeemer going to come from? Who, what must he be like? And it says, According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment, both now and in eternity. How, then, can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Answer, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or another. Oh, well, can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day, right? We add sin upon sin. And then it asks, well, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin or deliver others from us. So the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin, says Hebrews. So what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? Answer, one who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. So this is where we get into the doctrine of the incarnation. 
Why did God become man? Well, because he needed to in order to redeem his people. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Answer, because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its death, but a sinner could never pay for others. Right? You're going to pay your debt into eternity if you're not in Christ. You'll never finish paying that debt, uh, but you can't pay for somebody else because you're a sinner too. So he must be a righteous man in order to pay. Uh, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And then who is this mediator, true God and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. And then it goes on from there, and it says, we learn this through the Holy Gospel that's preached to us and taught in the Scriptures. Uh, but really, kind of a tour de force of theology there in just a few brief questions, kind of laying out the economy of redemption. Why did Jesus Christ have to be truly God and truly man in order to redeem us? So that's pretty thick stuff, but it makes sense, right? Any questions on that? Ryan. So does the Reformed Church teach that hell is a literal, physical place? Yes. Yes, we do. And it is a place where God's wrath abides. Uh, you, it's not an independent place. And this is, this is what I was trying to say with separation from God is not merely what hell is, because then hell would be an independent entity. If that's all hell is, and it could exist on its own, it's basically another God. Uh, we can't have that. So it is God actively pouring out wrath upon sin. I do, because uh, the creed doesn't get to change, right? This is what the church has always confessed as a collective, and we don't get to change the words. So there could be a question about how could we understand hell? How could we, could we change the word Catholic church to Christian church? Would be another one that people would want to bring up. Uh, but we don't really have the authority to change Christendom, I guess would be my my thought there. And it does give an explanation, so we just have to go through and read what it means when it says that. Thank you for that. Yeah.
That's not what it's really saying. So it's saying that he descended into hell at the cross and at the time of his anguish. And that's Calvin's view. So that's what John Calvin taught, uh, that he underwent hell on the cross because hell is God's wrath. So the question is, when Christ died, did he go to a literal place called hell? And did he preach to people and give them a second chance? Is that, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, so we would say no. We would say no. Uh, Go ahead. dies and then the judgment is what Hebrews says. just like to point you to the back of the sheet. We have a couple minutes here at the end. These are probably more fun question and answers. Uh, Some highlights there from Lord's Day 10 and 52. Uh, So what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds us with his hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I think that's really a wonderful statement about God's providence or providence, that's how you could say it. Uh, God is providing all things that we need for life and godliness. He takes care of us in all seasons of our life. And how does this now, so here's the rubber hitting the road, How does this knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. So you see God's sovereign. He's so very in control. He's providing all things for his church. and Really beautiful language there of a father who cares for his people. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, providence should always be something that makes us feel good. We should understand that God is caring for us uh, in his sovereignty. And I, I do, we have one minute, so I'll, I'll move on to 60 and 61, because I just, I like them a lot. Uh, dealing with justification, or how we're made declared right in the sight of God, righteous. 
How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. And then why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. So sometimes we say, oh, it's because I believe so hard. Are you believing hard enough? No, you're not. Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Right? If Christ's sacrifice on the cross didn't do it, what exactly are you going to add to it? Nothing. You can accomplish nothing. Christ has done everything for us, and so we are declared righteous solely based on Christ, and we simply rest and receive it by trusting in him. And I'll just, last question and answer I'll say, and then we'll, we'll pray and have coffee. Question answer 129. What does that little word amen express at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Amen means that this truly and surely be, for it is much more certain than God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Just a beautiful statement of how loving our Father is. He takes care of us. He provides for us for uh, life. He also provided a Savior that saved us uh, in spite of the weakness of our faith and the frailty of our works, and he loves to hear our prayers. So let's go to him in prayer then. Our Father, we do thank you uh, for the good news of the gospel that Jesus has triumphed, that he's paid the debt that our sins incurred, and Lord, we do thank you that you care for us. Lord, I pray that this brief time here in the Heidelberg Catechism would excite people to uh, seek out good teaching, good uh, patterns of words that the church has trusted through the ages. Oh, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified for what you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.